All right, let's pray before we get into the word. God, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us uh, through this word. Thank you for this book of Acts where we get to see what the, what the early church looks like. I am, I'm so thankful for that glimpse into the early church that you've given us. God, today, make our hearts just good soil for the gospel. Holy Spirit, come in and open our eyes and cause our ears to really hear what you're saying to us. God, we, we love you and we need you. Amen. All right, if you need a Bible, we only have a few, but will you raise your hand if you need a Bible? The reason we like to do this is if you don't own a Bible, we like to just put a Bible in your hands and you get to keep this. Go ahead, raise it high. Last service, they waited till halfway through my sermon before they raised their hands. So, uh, and if you do own a Bible, we just like to give this to you so that you can see this is God's word. This is a good translation of the Bible. We're not trying to make our own translation of the Bible. And so we want you to just get in God's word with us. So if you're new here, or even if you're not, just a reminder, we've been in this book of Acts. And this book of Acts is in the New Testament, and it's this story of the early Christians. And it starts off with Jesus commissioning the early Christians, saying that we're going to be his witnesses, and that the Holy Spirit is going to come on power and fill the Christians so that they can be like Jesus, and that they will have power throughout the world proclaiming his gospel. And we've got to see so many stories throughout Acts, but there's this one story that we've been really honing in on the last few months, and it's on this guy who was first named Saul and then became Paul after, at some point after he became a Christian because of just the radical, well, we don't really know why he changed his name, but I think he wanted to get away from some of his tough past, which we'll we'll see a bit of today. And, And lately, Paul has been moving towards Rome. So first, he felt constrained by the Spirit, that means like forced essentially by the Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem wasn't a great spot for Paul to go because what he was doing was he was upsetting the whole Jewish faith. And so he gets to Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin and these Jewish Jewish rulers and authorities take Paul and they say, hey, we want to kill you. And so now a, uh, a Roman governor steps in named Felix. And he says, well, why do you want to kill him? And they can't ever figure it out. But this Roman governor, Felix, wants to make these Jewish people happy. So he, set, he just keeps Paul in jail for two years. And he'd prayed him out and talk to him for a little bit and then bring him back to jail and bring him out. And he was hoping to get a bribe. And so this is the place Paul's in. And then it was so long that a new Roman governor, Festus, comes on the scene. And now he's put in charge of Paul. And that's where we left off with Paul last week. It Kind of in this weird limbo stage of being imprisoned and not knowing really what to do with him because he had appealed to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen as well. So that means he could go before Caesar and plead his case. And so this is where Paul is. Before we see where... He goes next. Uh, I want to share a little story. Well, it's not really a story, but it's more of an illustration. So what I, I love movies. I just love movies. There's something from an early age, movies have always captured my imagination. And one of my favorite things that uh, movies do, there's this one, the certain movies do this, and it's, a, it's a, like a storytelling device. And it's when you see the end of the movie at the beginning of the movie. 
Okay, some of you guys know those movies. When I'm at, in a movie and they show the end of the movie, like a scene from the end first, I'm like, I'm going to like this movie. I know. <laughs> I'm just going to like it. Like Inception does it. Forrest Gump does it. One of my favorite movies that does this is Slumdog Millionaire. Okay, and I'm just going to set the scene for you. Okay, so we got Slumdog Millionaire. The credits just stopped. It's just black. Light comes on. There's a face. It's our boy Jamal. He's just sitting there. He's sweating. Smoke is blowing in his face. You're like, get out of there, dude. There's a fire. But then you see sitting across from him is some big old dude. He's smoking a cigarette right in his face. It's rude. You're like, what is going on here? And then words pop on the screen. The words on the screen go, this is Jamal. He is one question away from winning a million rupees in India's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? in that room, right? And you don't know what's going on and you're, you're getting excited. And then another question pops on the screen and it says, how did he do it? Then the big guy slaps Jamal. Jamal's down. And then you just see hands throwing money, hands throwing money. You're like, whose hands are these? We don't know. Where's this money going? And you don't know what's going on. And you're so excited. Now, the reason I, uh, they do that in movies is so that when you watch the journey of the rest of the movie, you're excited to see what happens, you're like, man, all these events that lead up to this point must have been awesome. And I think today's text, all the points leading up to the end are very exciting, but I want us to start with the end to intrigue your incitement. So let's, let's look at this end scene of this movie that we're talking about today in Acts 26, and it's going to be in verse 28. And it says this, And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What a scene. Right, this is the end of the movie, right? We have Agrippa just here. Who's Agrippa? That's a weird name, right? This guy earlier in the service was calling him Asperga. And this guy Agrippa is sitting before Paul, and Paul has these chains on, and Agrippa goes, you're going to convince me to be a Christian? We don't know his intonation, but I like to assume that's what it was. And so Paul's like, whether short or a long time, I would hope that you would become like me, except for these chains I've got on me. That's exciting. That's intriguing. That will make everything that leads up to this moment a little bit more intriguing for us. And I also wanted to talk about this because I think what Paul says here, where he says, man, I want you to become like me, that's what I want for us today. I want you, every single person in this room, to become like Paul, except for his chains. And here's what I mean. For non-Christians in the room, which I know there's usually a few, I want, by the end of the sermon, that you have faith and hope in Jesus and a relationship with God like you've never had before. That's what I want. For Christians in the room, I want you to become like Paul because I think sometimes when it comes to speaking the gospel and proclaiming what Jesus did, we've, we've really dialed it down to science of proclaiming the historical facts that Jesus did, and that's important, and that's good and necessary. But sometimes when we've done that, we forget the beautiful implications of the gospel. We forget these beautiful things that God does because of the gospel, when God connects us back to himself. And so whether you're in here, you're not a Christian, or you are a Christian, I hope by the end of the sermon that you would become like Paul. 
all right? And so today, there's, there's four parts. The fourth part is the ending. We just saw the ending. But let's reverse back to the beginning of the movie, just like Slumdog Millionaire does with part one. And part one of the story is an introduction of our characters, all right? So 25, Acts 25, 13, which is back at the beginning, says this. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Let's stop there for now. So we find out that this guy Agrippa is a king, and he's with his sister Bernice. Okay, so what's interesting about this scene is we get a little bit more of who was this guy saying to Paul at the end of the story, you would convince me, right? This is a king. And if you look deeper into history, you look at this, this was Agrippa II, and he was in the lineage of the Herods. And if you don't know the Herods, the Herods in the Bible were these kind of like these Jewish kings over Israel that Rome appointed, I think kind of to appease the Jewish people and to keep the Jewish people from rioting. And so it was this family whose last name kind of was the Herods. I don't know how it works, but they, they called themselves the Herods. To give you an idea, Agrippa II's great-granddaddy was the Herod who, when Jesus was born, he was very threatened by that, and he said, let's kill all the male babies two years and under. So this is his great-granddaddy. Uh, so this is Agrippa II. Agrippa I is his dad. And Agrippa I kills James, and he imprisons Peter. So this family, not a Jesus-loving family, right? Not, they don't, they're not big fans of Jesus or Jesus' people. And then we have Festus, who, again, he's this Roman governor who is really in charge here, who will decide what happens to Paul. And he's confused because he's Roman, and now he has Agrippa and Bernice who are Jewish, and so I think he is happy about that. So I'm going to sum up the rest of part one of the story. So Festus sees Agrippa, and he says, listen, man, I've got this prisoner named Paul, and he's basically having a debate with Jewish people uh, where he says, this guy Jesus who's dead, he says he's alive. And I don't know what, I just don't know what to do with this guy. I know you're Jewish. I hope you could help me understand this, essentially, is what the rest of part one. And Agrippa says, yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to hear from him. And Festus says, okay, we'll set it up tomorrow. We'll, we'll make it happen. Let's do this, okay? So that's part one, introduction of the characters. Part two, we're going to see that the scene is set. We're going to see that the scene is set, and it's going to start in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the, oh, we're actually gonna, oh yeah, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So we have Agrippa walk in with great pomp. This means, like, I, I was reading some words on this. It basically means his entourage was with him. He had all these people looking at him. He had his sister Bernice here, and they're sitting there, and then there's these military tribunes, and there's prominent men of the city, and it's at an audience hall. It's not just some person's dining room. They're really making a show of it is what that word pomp means, okay? And so they're making a show of this, and then Festus brings Paul in, and here comes in Paul with these chains. So this is the scene that is set for us in part two. Paul is not just before Agrippa. He's before all of these people about to be talked to and spoken to. We have Roman people, we have Jewish people. It's a very interesting scene. So let's get on to part three of the story. And part three starts in, well, actually, let's sum up the rest of part two, sorry. 
The rest of part two, Festus actually just gets up in this audience hall and he just essentially says, hey, here's this guy, Paul. I don't get what he believes. He's appealed to Caesar. I've got to send him that way. I've got to write Caesar a letter saying, Paul did this. I don't know what to write. King Agrippa, will you help me? And then part three of the story happens, and this is going to be all the rising action to that part four ending that we read. So part three starts in Acts 26, and it says this. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Let's stop there before we go on. So Agrippa is kind of this guy that's being honored in the scene. He goes, go ahead, speak, Paul. And Paul's like, I'm, I'm honored that it's you. You understand the Jewish faith. And I think Paul knows because he knows that Christianity is a continuation of that. And so Paul is excited to speak to him. And he says, man, I just hope that, and I think he's saying to the King Agrippa, but I think he's saying to everybody that you would listen patiently to me because he knows that what he's about to say can be hard for people. And I want to say this too. Whoever you are in here, whomever you are in here, I'd ask that you'd listen patiently because we're going to look, this is going to be all the action that leads up to that ending. And it's going to be this one of Paul's last major speeches, it is the last major speech of Paul in Acts. And we're going to see all of these beautiful things in it. And I've looked at five elements from this speech. And these five elements, I think, should encourage us to get to that point that I said to make us more like Paul. So that we would be like Paul except for those chains. And so we're going to look at those elements. So let's read the first part of his speech. And we're going to see two elements from this. This first reading is going to be long, so bear with me. Verse 4, this is Paul speaking. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises up the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So let's stop there. So Paul gets up and he begins to give this speech. And he says, listen, I was very Jewish for a long time. 
Not only that, he's basically like, I was super Jewish, right? I was very kosher, right? He gets up, he goes, it was so kosher that I was of our strictest part of our religion, which is called the Pharisees. And you can ask my friends. They were all like, yeah, he was super kosher. And they'll, they'll all say this about me. But then uh, I, I, was, I was so Jewish that when these Jesus people started coming about, I started persecuting them. I started throwing them in jail. At one point, this guy was going to get stoned to death, and I cast my vote against him. And I was still zealous about this even after we killed that guy. And so I asked the chief priest for permission to go to Damascus and to persecute Christians there. And so on the way to Damascus, this bright light shines. I'm blinded. I'm, I'm down on the ground. My friends are all around me. And God begins to speak to me. And he reveals himself to be Jesus. And my life is forever changed. Now there's two elements And the first element I want us to look at from this speech is Paul's use of his story. Paul's use of his story of becoming a Christian in this. Now here, if you're not a Christian, like all this stuff that says about Paul, you could do a lot of historical research. This is accurate. It's pretty convincing that a guy who was putting Christians in chains happily is so convinced that Jesus is Lord that now he becomes willingly a Christian put in chains himself. That's convincing. So Paul's either crazy or he's encountered the Lord of the universe. That's convincing in itself. But I also want to say this, is in this room, there are many Christians who have a story about how they became a Christian. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to go up to some people and ask if you have lunch or coffee or something and say, can you tell me the story of how you became a Christian? And I dare you to ask 10 people just to, to, to say, how did you become a Christian? Because I think you'll begin to see God working uniquely in a lot of these people's lives. And you'll be like, man, this is, I can see why this person became a Christian. So Christians in the room, we have to get good at telling our story, right? The Christianese term for it, our testimony, right? We have to get good at telling this thing so that when people ask us or even when we're just talking to people, we can say, this is how Jesus saved me. And I think something in the church has kind of happened that kind of bums me out is we really just celebrate the really crazy stories, right? Almost the Paul lightning moment, right? My dad, he, he got saved. And what happened when he got saved? This is true. He said, uh, one night he was praying. He, goes, he said, God, if you're real, turn on that street light. The street light pops on. He's been a Christian ever since, right? That's a crazy story. <laughs> right? My mom doesn't believe him. And, <laughs> and so that's a crazy story. So we put those stories on stage sometimes. We pass that blog around that says those kinds of stories. But I think a tragedy has happened in the church because if you believe in Jesus, a miracle has happened in your life. God has taken you and done something in your heart that is a miracle, and you should figure out how it is a miracle and figure out how God saved you. Right? I have this guy in my RC who we were all sharing some stories of how, our stories of how we became a Christian and this guy in my RC, he said, man, I grew up in the church, and around 12, I was just kind of depressed and emotional, and I was having a hard time with that. And I just went home one day, and I opened up the Bible to the Psalms, 
and I began to read the Psalms, and God really spoke to me through the Psalms, and I saw David's emotion and depression, and it really moved me, and I realized that God was speaking to me as I read those Psalms. That's amazing. You'd think a lot of people say, oh, I grew up in the church, my story's not that amazing, but he's thought about it, and he realized that God did an amazing thing there. When I was 12 and trying to read my Bible, I wasn't, right? I couldn't. I'd read it, and I'm like, this is horrible. Why is there so many genealogies? right? Like, I would just freak out, like, and I didn't like it. So God did a miracle in this guy's heart to cause the Psalms to speak to him in that moment. Christians, we got to get good at telling our stories. If you're here and you just became a disciple over time, you got to figure out how did God, who were the people God put in your life? What did God do to cause you to become a Christian? If you grew up in the church you got to figure out how did God protect you? Who were the people God put in your life to proclaim the gospel well to you, to tell you who Jesus is? Figure that out. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. It can be just like my friend who said, just opened up the Psalms, right? We've got to be good at telling our story because I just invited a whole group in here to ask you guys your stories. And it's something that Paul time and time again used to convince people that Jesus was real, Okay? So that's element number one, sharing our story. Element number two, it's in verses six through eight, which I read already, but I'm going to read again. And now, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So the second element of Paul's speech is his hope in the promise. His hope in the promise. Now, I had to look up uh, the dictionary definition of hope because I was like, how do you describe hope? The dictionary definition is this earnest feeling or desire or trust that something is going to happen. And it's always in our opinion, from our perspective, something good is going to happen. So Paul has this hope in, a, in the promise. So what's the promise? Well, the promise is this, this story that's all throughout the Old Testament. Because right when people sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were deceived by the serpent, they're sitting there and God's kind of telling them the consequences of their sin. And he speaks to the serpent and he says, listen, one day I'm going to send someone through this woman's lineage who's going to crush his head even though you're going to bruise his heel." And this was the promise that God made that he would come that one day and he would defeat sin, and he would defeat death, and he would defeat the serpent, which is Satan. And then God made a people, the people of Israel, and he, he brought prophets out from a, within them. And they began to speak about this Messiah who was going to come and not only redeem the people of Israel and their sin, but redeem the nations and all peoples. And so this is the promise that Paul has hope in. And now what he's realized is that promise has come true in Jesus. And so Jesus has fulfilled this. He has defeated sin and death on the cross and raising back to life. And then Paul's hope goes further. His hope is that Jesus is going to return again one day and completely make all things right. And we're going to be back to the situation where we are living with God in the garden in a sense, but the garden's going to be a city now. And so this is Paul's hope in the promise. 
And I, I, as I read this and I see how hopeful Paul is and how he talks about the gospel, I just looked at myself and I was like, man, I don't know if I'm that hopeful sometimes. You know, I'm very pessimistic. And, and I asked myself this question. I want to ask it to everybody here. What is your hope in? Because I think my hope is in things that are earthly and created. Right, here's what I mean. So my wife, she says I have this thing. She says it's like an itch, okay? She goes, every few months you get this itch. And when she says to me, I'm like, no, I don't. But I know, I'm like, I do, I have this itch. And this itch is this itch to buy something, right? I just, I get, I'm just like, I gotta buy something. And that's, honestly, I think that's the first thought that comes to my head. I'm just like, I gotta buy something. And then I do all this, re- and then I like kind of figure out what I want to buy. It's usually like a video game. And that's right, pastors can play video games, deal with it. And, and I'll do all this research, whatever it is, it's usually some kind of technology. And I'm like, man, this will be so good, and this will be great, and here's all this research, and here's how to get the best deal. And then I'll buy it, and I'll bring it home, and I'll plug it in, and then I'll like it for that day. And then the next day, I'm in the, in the depths of utter despair, <laughs> just... It, I'm like, this is not satisfying me the way that I thought it would. Right? I'll still use these things and enjoy these things, but it just doesn't satisfy me the way that I thought it was. And so then a few months later, I get that itch again. I think that itch is a description of our human condition where we hope in things rather than in God. So that itch, every time I get that itch, it, I should actually go, this means I need God. Because only God can satisfy. Only God could fulfill me. Only with God could I the next day not be in utter despair because of my relationship with him. And so I think sometimes I just want to ask, what's your hope in? Is it in the next best relationship? Is it in the next best experience or the next best travels or the best job possible or having the most money or having the nicest house possible? or the nicest family possible. And I just want to say from talking to people, all of those things at some point are going to let you down. Because it's good to want some of those things, but when we replace those, God with those things, that's where we have a problem. Our hope should be in God who has defeated sin and death and is coming once again to completely finish the job. So what's your hope in? First two elements so far, Paul's use of his story and his hope in the promise. Let's uh, move on to the next element. It's in verse 16. So this is, Paul, this is Jesus still speaking to Paul. And he says this, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to these things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This element here, this third element, is God's given purpose for Paul. God's purpose for Paul. 
Now, this word freaks us out because some pastors have used this word well, but there are pastors out there and other people that aren't pastors out here that have taken this word and they've hijacked this word. And they're usually, they're these prosperity pastors who say, God only wants the best things for you and he wants you to make a lot of money so, and then you should give a lot of money to the church and you should have the nicest things and live in the nicest neighborhoods. And there are people that say that and they say, this is part of your purpose, this is part of your destiny. And just because those guys have hijacked that word doesn't mean that we can't reclaim that word and use it appropriately. And so God has a God-given purpose for you. He has connected you back to him. I think a lot of times when we, we want it kind of like Paul, we want the light to shine on us and we want God to say or an angel to say to us like, wake up this morning, get on a flight to Bangladesh and you will find a blind child there and feed him lunch, right? Like, that's what we want. And that's okay. Maybe sometimes God does speak in that way. But I think right here in God's word, this thing's been so twisted that we forget that God's word is here for us, and there's so much God-given purpose in here for us right now that we can latch onto because so many of us are hungry for purpose. So let's just go through some of the ways that God says he has purpose for us and what his intention in creating us was. The first thing, he says this all throughout the Bible, and Jesus re-says it, but he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're done. Wake up tomorrow morning, try that. That's your purpose. Like, that's, that's enough. But connected right to that, Jesus said, and also, love your neighbor as yourself. So the way that we think about ourselves and care for ourselves and do mostly everything for ourselves, if we're honest, God says, take that and love your neighbor with that same way and that same passion. We're good. That's a lot of purpose right there. You're like, Anthony, that's too, that's too general. Well, then Jesus said, go and make disciples. So he said, go make people like him. Then Jesus said, go be my witnesses. So then go out and say, hey, this is my witness to what Jesus has done in my life and what he's done here on this earth. So right now we've got love God, love people, make disciples, and then be, wit a, be a witness. What's more than that too, if you want to get even more specific, in Acts 17, God says to us that he has put us in our times and places so that those around us might reach out and feel their way to God, giving you the picture of a blind person looking for something. So there's more purpose for you. God, right now, wherever you're going today, all those people around you, God wants them to find him and he wants you to be part of leading them to him. There's so much purpose. God-given good purpose for us. He also says, hey, we're ministers of reconciliation. So we have to be agents of people that reconcile people to God and reconcile ourselves horizontally to this earth and the things around us and the people around us. Ministers of reconciliation. And then God, even in Ephesians 2, he says that he has prepared good works for us to do beforehand because we're his craftsmanship. So God has made us as his craftsmanship and he has specific good works for you. I don't know what those are, but I think it's all rooted in all that other stuff of loving God and loving people. So God does have specific things for you to do. We have God-given purpose. Too many of us are chasing a finite, trite purpose of just one thing, one specific thing, but God has a bigger vision for you because you have God's image on you. So yeah, this is a word that's been hijacked, 
But this purpose is what propelled Paul, and he likes to talk about it here in this speech. And so I thought it was a good thing for us to talk about as well. So three elements so far. Let's move on to element number four, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and through all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul gets up, and he says, King, he goes, I did what Jesus called me to do. And I called people to repentance. I called them to get out of their darkness and go to the light. I called them to get out of Satan's world and enter your kingdom so that they could understand that they have forgiveness of sins and an ongoing work of sanctification in their lives. And so this fourth element of Paul's speech that I want us to talk about and think about is Paul's call to repentance. I think when we talk about Jesus, there should be a call to repentance at some point. And this is, this is what repentance means. So repentance is this idea. It's kind of been Christianized and, and it's like a religious word, so it can be hard to understand. But this idea is that we have sin and we're walking towards more sin. We're looking at ourselves and we're walking towards more sin. We're even walking towards things that aren't sin and we're making them sin because we're turning those things into God and we're making them our functional idols that we worship. And we're just walking towards those things. A call of repentance says, hey, turn around. Don't walk towards those things. Turn around and turn to God who can, he is better than all of those things and he is who you were created for. And in your sinfulness, you can't fix yourself. You need to run to God. You need to turn to God. And so we need to make a call of repentance and call people to turn to God. We, do, we need to call out sin at times. We need to tell people, hey, I think you're broken. I think you have sin in your life. And we don't like that. Our society says, no, don't do that. And I talk to my friends a lot, and they say, listen, Anthony, when I get to heaven, one day God's going to look at me. He's going to hey, you're pretty good. Come on in. And I think the problem is we're comparing ourselves to other people. Right? We're going up to God, and we're going, well, hey, I'm not Hitler. Let me in. Right? I'm not like my Aunt Susie who's crazy. Let me in. I think spiritually, this is kind of what we're doing. When I was a kid, I was really short, okay? Like front row of the class photo short, okay? I hated it. And one of the things that happens when you're a short kid is you go to a water park or an amusement park, and there's this, you must be this tall to ride part. And as a short kid, you're just like, you, you go up and you try to go on, and the lifeguard or the button pusher says, hey, you're, you're not tall enough. You can't be on this ride. And I go away sad. Now imagine, though, if I brought with them my younger sister, and I said, and the lifeguard's like, hey, you're not tall enough. And I said, but look at my sister. She's shorter than me. A lot shorter. So peace be with you. I'm going on the slide, right? Like, I think we do that with our sin and God's holiness. 
Because God does not make the standard other people. The standard is his holiness, which is a perfection in himself where he is set apart from all creation. And so we, before, we can't even, if in our sinfulness, we can't even be before God. We will be eradicated by his holiness. That's how different, how set apart God is for me and you in his perfection. And if we really believe in the infinite God of the universe who has the keys to heaven, we have to believe in a holy God as well. And so we need to make a call and say, hey, you're over here and you're in your sin and you're messy. You can't save yourself. But God has done all this stuff to save you. You just have to turn to Jesus and trust in him because Jesus actually, he has lived the righteous life. He has righteousness for you that you don't have. He can stand before God and not be eradicated. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Not only that, your sin deserves punishment. The things you've done, it deserves punishment. Jesus has taken that punishment on the cross for you. But it doesn't end there. Jesus was put in this tomb, and he comes back to life because he wants to restore each and every one of you. He wants to give you life, and life is with him giving him glory. So turn from your sin. Turn from the stuff you're chasing. It's not good enough. You were created for God. So I think that when we speak about Jesus to our friends, we have to be wise about it. But there at some point should be a call to repentance. We should ask them, do you think that path is better than this path? And they might say yes, and they probably will. But we have to help convince them that their sin is so much worse than Jesus. That staying in their sin is so much worse. So four elements in Paul's speech so far, his story, his hope in the promise, his God-given purpose, and now this call to repentance. Let's look at this fifth element, verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Love that verse. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his nose, for this has not been done in a corner. And then we get into part four of the story where we saw it. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We'll stop there. So Paul is getting after it. He just makes a call to repentance. Surprise, someone interrupts him and says, I don't like that. Festus says, Paul, you are crazy. You're out of your mind. You've been learning too much. You've been reading Ezekiel too long. You don't get this, man. You're, you're losing it. And Paul says, no, I'm speaking true and rational words. Agrippa, you know the prophets. Do you believe the prophets? Because this is what they talked about happening. Do you believe him? I don't know if Agrippa was intrigued or if he was put off by what Paul said. I think for show he was probably a little bit put off because he's in front of everybody. And he says, you think I can become a Christian? In this shorter time, Paul says, yes, I hope so. And anybody else here? A little altar call real quick, right? He just, he goes for it. 
And I think this fifth element that I want to touch on, because I think Paul does this a lot throughout Acts, and we haven't talked a lot about it, but this fifth element in his speech is his use of true and rational words. Okay, so all throughout his speech, he goes, well, there's these Jewish people, they can attest. I was super Jewish. And then there was these guys I was hanging out with, and they can attest. A bright light shone all around us when Jesus struck me down. And I, I've been clear, and I've been concise, and I've been speaking what the prophets say. And I think sometimes in Christianity, we get kind of lazy in how we're going to proclaim the gospel. It, because right now, 2,000 years out, we have probably more skeptics than ever of the Christian faith. And they have all these kind of arguments that can be very convincing. But I want to say this. And there are more often than not good answers for their questions. There, there are good answers for their skepticism. And sometimes it bums me out that we as Christians don't look and seek for those good questions. We just hear one YouTube blogger's idea about a verse he did some Greek research on. We go, that must be it. Instead of really diving in and looking at what God's trying to speak and looking for some historically good answers for our faith. So Paul used true and rational words. I think we should use true and rational words. Because I think it's something that we've, we've maybe grown lazy in doing. You know, the Christian word for this is like apologetics, right? Apologetics is thing where we can really defend the faith well. So those are these five elements in Paul's speech. And right after this, the king and Festus, they basically go, well, this is a lost cause. He's appealed to Caesar. I don't know what to say. Right? Or I, write this down, send him. He hasn't really done anything, but send him to Caesar. And these five elements that Paul just spoke about, he just told his story. He talked about his hope in the promise. He talked about his God-given purpose. He made a call to repentance, and the whole time he was using true and rational words. Now, if you're here, you're not a Christian. I hope some of that convinced you. I hope that the gospel is at least intriguing to you, that Jesus is intriguing to you and maybe a little bit more beautiful than you remember it. And if it's not, I'd love to sit with you and talk with you and just find out where you're at. Because I do want you to become like Paul. Because I want you, because you to become like Paul because I want so badly for you to be connected to the Lord who made you. Because that's what you were made for. God has put this love in my heart to, for you to have the best, and the best is God. And then Christians in the room, I want you to become like Paul too. Not become a hero of the faith, like, oh, we look at these examples and we become like them. I don't want you to become like Paul in that sense. I want you to become like Paul because all these things he did in his speech, I think they give glory to God. I think what he does there gives glory to God, and that's another part of our purpose. God has made us to give him glory. And so Christians in the room, if you're like, man, I don't like this whole premise, what Paul does in the story gives Jesus glory, and we were made to give him glory. So friends, I hope from looking at this that each and every one of you would become like Paul except for those chains. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you love us and care for us. God, it's amazing to me that we don't just simply have to adhere to a bunch of rules about you but we actually get to know you and that these truths about you and what you've done to save us cause us 
um, to be awestruck. So God, help us to see that you're beautiful and that you've given us a beautiful message to hold on to. God, I just ask right now, Holy Spirit, convict those in this room of their sin. God, this is the thing we least like talking about, but convict all of us of our sin. Holy Spirit, you said you'd convict the world of its sin. Convict us, God, so that we could turn to you. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.